Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined today by Natasha Mascarenas. Natasha, how are you? I'm doing delightful, Alex. It, it actually feels wrong that we're on Zoom right now, though. It, it, it does feel a little bit incorrect, but we'll tell you why in just a moment. But we have a repeat guest on today. We have Phil Liven. He is back. Back then, we were talking about a thing called All Turtles, which was his kind of startup studio that was incubating all sorts of ideas. And we talked about the IPO market. And then last year, Phil mm-hmm, came to be and became a, a, almost like a cultural touchstone inside of the startup world because it had a very, very startup-y name and a cool product. So one, welcome back. And two, I want to start by having you tell us how the hell mm-hmm, went from idea to product. Well, thank you. It's good to be back. And, you know, as a little kid growing up in the Soviet Union, 80% of the people I knew were named either Alex or Natasha. So I just feel, I feel right at home. <laughs> at home. We did it just, just for good, your comfort. Good. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, mm-hmm started as a joke uh, a little over a year ago in May of 2020. So, you know, a couple of months into the pandemic, we all went fully distributed. We as in uh, All Turtles, which is the, the, I think the product studio that we talked about last time I was, I was on your show. And, you know, for the first couple of months of being locked down, it, it wasn't that boring because it was, you know, it was pretty terrifying. We we're all afraid that we were going to die. Yep. But then we didn't. And two months later, it was just kind of tedious and boring. And we were being productive, but everything sort of sucked. And we just started goofing around on video because, you know, that's all we did. Uh, just trying to make people laugh a little bit. So it literally started as a joke, but then kind of snowballed from there. So May is when this kind of kicked off. And then July is when mm-hmm, hit my radar. So tell me a little bit about how you went from kind of like joke idea to product that you actually launched. How long did it take to build? Was it complex? That stuff. I had this green camping towel I actually still have with me. Check it out. It's going to make me invisible. Ooh. Oh, now you are invisible. Yeah. Uh, he has a green screen on our, our little video chat we're doing to record this. And uh, he just pulled out an invisibility cloak, it looks like. An invisibility cloak, that's right. Yeah, I had, so I had, I had this green camping towel, which no one knows why, because I've never been camping. And I started, I just stuck it on the wall behind me, and I just was using it to just show images and that kind of stuff on Zoom calls. And I started, I taught a class that way, and, uh, you know, it just kind of made people laugh, and I realized this is actually kind of an effective way to communicate. So we built a quick prototype, me and, 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 and Steve, my co-founder, one of our engineers at All Turtles, and um, I just pinged a couple of people. I just I texted Roloff at, at Sequoia and just said, hey, we kind of made this new thing. Uh, don't know what we're going to do with it yet, but, you know, I kind of want to show it to you, get your opinion. And I pinged uh, you know, a few other folks that I knew and just, you know, jumped on Zoom calls because everyone, that's all people were doing back then. And yeah. pretty much immediately, like everyone I showed it to was like, OK, yeah, you should make that a real product. I want that. I want to start using it today. And so it, it, it just went from there. And Sequoia ended up actually leading your seed and series A rounds. I think by that point you had raised somewhere near, near 35 million. Yeah, I think 36 or something, but yeah, some, somewhere okay. in that range. I'm off by 1 million. Yeah. God damn it. How, how dare you, Natasha? <laughs> it adds up. <laughs> it's, it's 36 more million than I have in my bank account. But I, I was curious like what it felt like to, I guess, raise 36 million pre-launch. We talk a lot about these big raises pre-launch on equity. But it's rare that we have a founder on the hot seat to be like, okay, how does this actually change the building of my company or really what we do like on Monday? <laughs> Look, I, I always, I, I don't think that raising money is, is an accomplishment. I think that, you know, raising money for a startup and, you know, this is my fifth startup. Uh, I kind of keep doing this and I was VC for a few years. So I've kind of seen this from all angles. And I don't think raising money is, is an accomplishment. I think raising money is kind of an obligation. Now you're just like on the hook to deliver for, you know, for more people. It's more, more stuff that you have to do. You know, it's an important step. 
for certain types of businesses, not for all. Uh, for us, we kind of figured even at the A round that this was going to be a pretty massive worldwide change. It felt like this was going to be the next big platform. After, for example, when we started Evernote, the big platform that was starting was smartphones. And we were like, okay, well, smartphones right. are going to change everything. And, you know, we knew that that's going to require a lot of money to kind of play in that field and be taken seriously. And so we thought the video was actually going to be bigger than smartphones, bigger, more of a change in the world than even, you know, the internet was. And my first company was during when we all ran around and said dot com, dot com a lot and, you know, late <laughs> 90s. So we thought we, you know, we would need uh, resources to really do this seriously. So we, we went out for a pretty big round and it came together quickly. Mm hmm. I think we, we kind of have the, this is kind of a cheat code uh, for other founders. If you just want to know how to raise money quickly, there's like this, there's kind of a cheat code that you can type in on your, on your life controller. Um, everyone that we pitched mm -hmm to thought that the big picture idea was plausible. Like they kind of got the jazz hands that, oh, this mm -hmm. could be a multi-trillion dollar restructuring of the world. Like everyone kind of thought that was plausible. They don't have to like believe that it's likely. They just, you know, for an early stage round, they just have to think that it's plausible. So they thought that the big picture was plausible. And at the same time, they all wanted to use it themselves today. Like every investor wanted to use it, you know, with their kids, with their portfolio companies today. So it didn't require like a leap of imagination for them to imagine who would use it. They wanted to use it. So when you have those two things together, plausibly big story, plus a product and a demo that people want to use today, then, then it goes quickly. So we, we raised the money pretty fast and then thought we would just go heads down for a few years and, uh, you know, not have to raise more money and, and, and work on building the product. So this brings me to something that I wanted to, to bring up because I was very impressed by how quickly you guys built up a wait list for the product. Uh, I think when you guys opened up the, uh, the, the Mac beta more broadly, it was like 100,000 users in August of 2020. Uh, how fast did that wait list grow? Was it like day one, people were just piling in to sign up? And, and did that kind of early user demand help make the fundraising process easier? So it, it grew pretty fast, although we weren't we weren't really trying. So we, we were pretty specific about the, the purpose of the beta. Uh, we wanted to build a um, a pretty good quality product and a very powerful product as quickly as possible and get it to market. And so for us, the beta was entirely about product development, not about marketing. We weren't trying to stoke FOMO or anything else. So um, we wanted to have a controlled beta where every day we would invite the smallest statistically significant number of new people so that we can actually test whether the release from the previous night was better or worse. You need a constant flow of, you know, a few hundred to a few thousand people at each daily cohort so that you can actually see scientifically, well, is this, you know, have we fixed the bugs? Have we introduced new bugs? Is new user experience better or worse? And we didn't want more than that. The reason that the, the wait kind of grew so long was because we were only admitting a few hundred people a day because more than that wouldn't, would actually take longer to build a high quality product. And we were pretty upfront about that. So we never tried to get a lot of popularity. I think the reason, or I actually want to hear if what you think about how much the name played into the original like excitement. And, and I think like, honestly, just like all over Twitter, seeing mm -hmm everywhere. I think there's a bunch of rumors we heard on why the name is the way it is, but I'll let you correct the record. Yeah, I think I put up a video about, you know, five fake reasons for why we called it uh, mm -hmm, like one of the first <laughs> the first videos. Uh, look, it, it started as a joke, like everything did. Um, you know, we we originally called it that thinking, OK, at some point we'll come up with a with a better name. It, you know, it was meant to signal, you know, assent, agreement. Like if you're having a good meeting and you're talking and you're being engaging, people are kind of nodding and going, hmm, so that, mm -hmm. that, that's, all, that's all it meant. Once we decided to take it seriously as a product, we actually did a, a full naming exercise. I was pretty happy with mm-hmm. A lot of other people really didn't like it. People who know better than I do about, about names. And so I just pretended. I'm like, okay, look, it's just a code name. We're going to change it. But my whole strategy was like, <laughs> just keep it as a code name for a few months until it like settles into people's heads and then it'll be like impossible to change. So I don't even remember what the other it's, names are, but there were, we have a, like a list of a few hundred of them that we, that we, that we went through. 
I feel like it's it, it was really smart marketing, even if not intentional, because I think during the pandemic, even though we all were kind of bored in the beginning, at this point, it's so noisy and it's still a name people are talking about. So not to be too nice, but I feel like that is the big impact of having such a unique name. Okay, Phil, so going back to the chronology of this, you guys kind of opened the beta up a little bit more in August of 2020. You buy Memex in uh, October. You raise the Series A in October. And then comes November, which is kind of, for me, a turning point in the company because you introduced Pro Plans, a paid version of, mm-hmm. I think it was uh, 10 bucks a month, 100 bucks a year, pretty standard SaaS pricing. How did that paid launch go? I'm, I'm super curious. It was great. So yeah, we always knew from the beginning that we would do direct revenue only. That's kind of a rule at All Turtles for all of our, all the products we work on. It's got to be direct revenue only, which means we're only allowed to make money when people or companies pay us because they want to use our product. So no direct revenue, no advertising, no data mining, nothing kind of weird because we just think it, it sets up too many, too many conflicts. It like creates too many problems. So if you can, if you can right from the beginning, just say, we're going to make money by making a product that people want to want to buy simplifies life a lot. So it's very early days. It's only been, again, since November, a few months. So it's hard to get too excited about really early numbers. But early numbers, the conversion rates are much higher than than I ever seen before, like several times higher than they were at Evernote, like five, six, seven times higher than at Evernote at, at, at a corresponding stage, which kind of makes me think that uh, like they may be a little bit too high. Like we maybe we need to actually dial the knobs a little bit back to get you know more people in on the free version i'm just not sure we're still trying to balance that out the whole point in the first you know the first year or two is just to experiment with these things find the right that find the happy medium between how do you make it accessible how do you get it to as many people as possible especially people that can really benefit from it at the same time how do you make it a self-sustaining product so that we don't have to keep raising money and we don't have to compromise the user experience so I think right now the paid rates the conversion rates are, are super high it just signals an extremely high willingness of people and companies to pay for something that makes them better at video. It's just a real pain point. I think the the quarantine bump in energy and interest in like how to make video conferencing better is, is so, like you said, well-known and experienced and a pain point. And I guess from what it sounds like, it's it's still something that you're seeing users really engage with. Do you expect any, I guess, natural resettling, not led by, mm-hmm, but led by users themselves? Or and are you seeing any signs of that at this point? Well, I think I think that's actually a really important point. I think in the beginning, we were making the best of a bad situation, right? So we were we were trying to survive the pandemic uh, in the first few months of this and just kind of like, okay, let's try to make video a little bit better than it is. And I think you can get pretty far by, by making the best of a bad situation if, if the entire world happens to be in a bad situation. Like that's a, that's a <laughs> decent market. But, but things have changed completely. Like in the past few months, it's actually gone completely from making from like, thinking about how we survived during the pandemic to how do we thrive in the world after the pandemic. It's not about like using video because you're forced to, because video is a poor substitute for being in person. It's about like using video for the communication superpowers that it gives you. Like when you can choose what to do in person and what to do in video, it's become completely a positive thing. And I actually thought, as you said, that that would cause a slowdown. I thought that right about now, like there'd be like less investor interest, less general interest, because like people would be, you know, finally going out and, and, and doing things in person for the first time. But it's actually exactly the opposite, because I think what's happened is companies and people and investors have figured out that like, oh, this isn't a short term thing to make the best of a terrible short term situation. This is actually like permanent superpowers that you can get. Like, I don't think we would have been able to do this B round now 
if it was still a, you know, a stopgap measure during the pandemic, it's obviously because we're pointing at a, a much larger transformation uh, in the world. Yeah. So I was just talking to Mariano, the CEO of Mural, uh, previously Murally. They just announced a uh, $50 million round this week, uh, $2 billion valuation, 4X in the last year. And, you know, Mural, its main kind of product is a digital creative whiteboard slash white space. And, you know, talking to them last August when they raised their their big hundred and $18 million round. Yeah, we were riffing about the pandemic and growth rates and so forth. And so sitting with them, you know, last week, I was very curious, you know, what's it like post pandemic? And he was like, you know, a lot of our customers have multiple offices in different states. They're always going to be essentially quasi remote. This tool doesn't lose its its, its impact. It, it sounds like a, a bit like what you're describing, Phil, people realize that having better tooling is not something that you don't want <laughs> when the pandemic goes away a little bit. And I think that's, uh, you know, pretty bullish for, frankly, a lot of startups we've been talking to in the last year. I think this kind of distributed work and lifestyle is fundamentally important. It is a, it is a profound transformation in the world that is going to change just about everything, just yeah. about every industry, just about the entire way that we've structured knowledge work over the past hundred years is going to be different. And it's changing right now very quickly. The pandemic like accelerated that probably by a decade or two. These are things that were happening already, but it definitely yeah. like brought it forward into the future. But what we're doing, we're doing because it's great now, not because it's something to get through a difficult period. And I think not just us, I think a lot of these startups are, are, are kind of figured that out that like, yeah, this is a change in the world that if you embrace, if you get really good at it, it is amazingly good. Yeah. Um, and that's what's worth a lot of money. This brings us to the, the present day with mm -hmm, and the recent news. So you guys launched uh, enterprise accounts in a Windows beta in April, mm -hmm. uh, new features in May, which was, I, I love this, mm -hmm, chunky streaming mm -hmm, chunky. and Copilot 2.0. And then you guys raised in July a $100 million round from the SoftBank Vision Fund 2. We made light of that on the show and then your, your team noticed it. <laughs> Notably, so I wasn't we, on the show, so I still have some jokes in me. <laughs> Go for it. Yes, Danny and I may have made a couple of wisecracks on a Thursday <laughs> afternoon. Uh, so, so Phil, the, the the key question, and we're going to get into all turtles in a second. I'm going to hand the baton uh, to Natasha to lead. But like, tell us why raising the hundred million was the right move for the company at the right time, and, and why was it the right amount of money? So, I, I think that the resources uh, that we need to to just participate in rewiring the world is is are, are very significant. Uh, this is, um, you know, if you remember again back. 2007, 2008, kind of in, during the Evernote era when smartphones were the new thing. And there was a massive platform where it was Apple and Google and Facebook and you know, BlackBerry and all these other big companies that were kind of trying to figure out, okay, how's, how's everything going to shake out with, this, with these new smartphones? Because smartphones yeah. are going to take over the world, and, and they did. I think a similar thing right now is happening with video. And so there's going to be all of the incumbent players, uh, you know, Microsoft, Zoom, Google, Cisco, WebEx, all of those guys, plus a whole bunch of, you know, startups all partnering with each other, competing with each other, kind of jostling to invent this new distributed lifestyle, which is going to have nothing to do with video meetings. This is the main thing is having meetings on video in Zoom is like the least interesting use case for video because the, it's much more interesting just to ask like, well, what's the meeting there to begin with? Why are we having a meeting versus not having a meeting? What should we do in person? What should we do asynchronously? What should we do synchronously? How do we make all of this fairer and better and more accessible and more flexible? 
how can people live wherever they want to live, where they can have the best life and work, where they can have the best job? Like these are profound questions that this is going to raise and it's just going to be a complete hairball. So we wanted the resources to have a seat at the table. We want to have, you know, we started out just with a software on Mac. Now we have Mac, we have Windows, we're about to come out with iOS, we're working on Android and we're going to have versions for each of the other platforms. So we'll have to dedicate a team working on how do you make this experience great in Zoom? And another one, how do you make this experience great in WebEx? And another one, how do you make this experience great without any third-party things, just using, mm-hmm. What we can do with the capital is is yeah. just about infinite in this world. Um, the right time to take it is when it's being offered on good terms by great investors. So that, that's what happened. So essentially, the mistake that Danny and I made when we were when we were riffing was we were underestimating the size of the vision and the number of products you have to build to reach as many people as you'd like to. And it's hard to make products for iOS and Android. And well, you can't make WebEx good, but you could try, you know. Um, and <laughs> Phil didn't can, say I, that, Cisco. I, think, I did. I think, I think we can. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, Phil, what you said, like, I think you translated the opportunity and honestly, the urgency very well. At this point, I'm wondering how you are focusing and like how you're kind of picking which questions to answer and when, especially with so much money at your disposal right now, if you had to kind of give us a glimpse into the roadmap or even like the philosophical roadmap of, mm -hmm, I'd be super curious to, to see where your mind's been going. I, I did a business plan uh, for investors and board members. Um, and it, it was one slide. Uh, it was actually only four words. It was a four year business plan and it had one word per year. And that, that was our focus. So we kind of said year one, it's start. So the whole goal of year one, which just ended in May. So year one was you know the first 12 months was just just put something out into the world, make it so that there is something rather than nothing, raise some money, make a company, put something out in the world. That was the focus. We did that pretty well. We're now in year two. So for the next you know 11 months or so, the entire focus is product, product market fit. Make sure that the thing that we put out into the world is actually solving real problems for real humans that we care about and for real companies and problems that we want to solve. So that's, that's this focus, complete focus on this year. We don't care about scale because that's next year. So in year three, it shifts to reach or scale. So now that we put something out in the world and we made sure that it actually is pretty good, that it solves problems for real people, okay, now we wanna get into the hands of as many people as possible. And then in the you know, distant sci-fi future of year four, the focus is profit. Okay, now we've like put something out in the world and we made sure it's pretty good and we've got into the hands of as many people as possible. All right, how do we tighten all the bolts and screws to make sure that it is a virtuous freestanding business that, you know, that is making enough direct revenue to, to be profitable. So I want to go back to the idea of building out for multi-platforms. And then you said something very interesting in there. You said, or just maybe using, mm -hmm. and you know, we were talking about this before you got on and, you know, I, I'm curious, does mm -hmm build its own standalone? I, I'm not going to say video meeting service because you've been explicit that that's not really the full vision, but is there a time when I just fire up the mm -hmm app on my, on my work Mac and my phone and that's what I use to pick a pick a verb, communicate, collaborate, consort. I don't know. It, yeah. it, when does that come? Consort. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, now. Uh, so absolutely. So we have um, a, a bunch of the stuff that we announced as part of Chunky is uh, standalone functionality. So the idea is we will still work great inside of third party video platforms like Zoom and WebEx and everything else. And that's how most people will experience us. Most people experience them first because they're on a Zoom call and someone's using it. They're like, oh my God, what are you doing? That's so crazy. Uh, so it's really good for, for distribution, for growth. But we're also adding a lot of things where if multiple people are using them together, it becomes much better. Whether we're using it together on top of Zoom or we're just using it with no Zoom. 
So we, we announced a bunch of functionality that, uh, that doesn't require plugging into any ad additional uh, third-party system. That's really cool. In fact, uh, it's all still on our website. Uh, if you go to mm-hmm.app and you look at the, our events section, we just concluded a thing that we called mm -hmm Summer, where we just we did a whole bunch of demos and masterclasses and we announced all the stuff and there's, it's all up there. But yeah, I think, um, I think uh, right now, uh, you know, probably 80% of our usage is through something like Zoom. I think a year from now, it's probably going to be the other way. I think probably 60 to 80% will be freestanding and then, you know, 20 to 40% will be inside of a third party video system. Okay, perfect. We will quote you on that and, and have you back next year. I, I, I would love to, to get off Zoom. So I'm here for it, to be fair. So, and, and, but we're not trying to like displace Zoom. Like Zoom can have video meetings. They're welcome to them. I don't care about video meetings. I just want, you know, I want, I want all the other stuff. I want the much more interesting stuff than just video. I, like, for example, there's a big debate now, which I think is pretty stupid, about, well, like all of the video meetings went, uh, all, all meetings went to video during the pandemic, but now should they go back in person? But I think the interesting thing about a meeting isn't to like decide whether you should do it in person or in video. The, the best thing you do for meetings is to cancel them because meetings suck, right? Meetings we all kind of hate them. Preach. Why would we want to go back to the way they used to be? Like it weren't all that great to begin with. Yeah. So the real thing is, okay, how do we use video? How do we use asynchronous to make things much more flexible, much more collaborative where we don't have to have meetings? Another way to think about it is what we're doing right now, what the three of us are doing right now is the second most precious thing that we can be doing, uh, meaning we are talking synchronously. The three of us are having a conversation where three of us are actually at the exact same time, like interacting. That's pretty precious. That's hard to scale. We should make the most of it. The only thing that's even more precious than what we're doing is if we were meeting synchronously in person. Like that's like, you know, if we were if we were out to dinner, that would be like the tip of the pyramid in terms of like scarce resources. Like the thing that you can never scale is like in-person synchronous meetings. Those really need to count. Why would you waste that sitting in a boring room with a bunch of boring people talking about a subject that you don't want to talk about? You should do everything other than the most important stuff, not in person and in real time. And then the medium important stuff, we could do kind of what we're doing here, which is synchronous, but at least on video. But even that's pretty precious. 90% of what we should be doing should be neither synchronous nor in person, which is where the real growth of asynchronous video will come from. And I think that's the real use case for mm -hmm. So mm -hmm essentially is the way we're going to get to asynchronous video-based communications on a mass scale. Because I can't think of a product that I have used or heard of that does that at all, let alone well. Maybe that's what we are getting wrong. I mean, and we, I mean, like kind of a very vague we, um, because I think right now, like, and, and this is, I'm sure, Phil, you're experience, experiencing this with your consumers as well, where it's like people are just thinking of solutions to the current experience. Yeah, They're not course. thinking of how it can be better. Do you think four years is enough to get people to see asynchronously? Yeah, I think it's going to go fast. I think everything in the world is fast now, <laughs> faster than it was before. So I think once once people see the superpowers, look, 0% of the people who work uh, at, 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 at my company uh, have to waste time commuting every day. 0%. Nobody wastes two hours in traffic commuting. Like, why would I ever give that up? Like, that, that'd be crazy, right? I would never be like, hey, everyone, good news. Everyone's got to waste two hours a day sitting in traffic. Yes, it's not very productive. And yes, you can't get any work done. And yes, you're not with your friends and family. And yes, it's super unhealthy. And yes, it's terrible for the environment. But CEO idea, two hours every day, every person go waste it. Right? Like we're never <laughs> doing that. Companies who, who, who fantasize that they're going to get knowledge workers to do that are delusional. Yeah, I mean, just to back that up, not to not to be too agreeable, but like if uh, so the, the nearest Verizon Media Group office is in Boston. 
And uh, if, if you told me tomorrow that I had to go there, I would quit. Because it, it would ruin my life. Right. Yeah. And at the same time, like, um, uh, 100%. Uh, you know, like you guys have had, you know, CEOs and, and VCs and obviously lots of fancy people on the show. And you ask them, hey, what's the hardest thing about doing your, about running your company? And I guarantee you that you've only ever had the same answer. Because when you go to CEO school, and maybe you shouldn't be telling you this trade secret. When you go to CEO school, they tell you that when someone asks what's the hardest thing, there's only one answer you're legally required to give, which is every single CEO always says the hardest thing is hiring. Yep. The hardest talent. thing is talent, talent, recruiting, hiring, 100%. You've never gotten a different answer. And it's, it's mostly true. It really is hard. So like, here we are, we as CEOs who've just spent the past 40 years whining about how difficult, how the hardest thing is, is recruiting. And we've been given the greatest possible recruiting superpower, which is 100% of our jobs are now fully global. I have increased the top of the funnel, the people who are, who are available to work by several thousand X, many orders of magnitude. I'm going to give that up. I'm, I just spent 40 years, you know, telling anyone who will listen about how the hardest thing is recruiting. I've got the greatest possible asset in recruiting, which is the entire world to be recruited from and to work at. And, 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 and companies are going to give that up? Of course not. And, like, and those are just like, that's just two of many, many of these like foundational life-changing superpowers that companies get and individuals get if you embrace this distributed lifestyle. And no, it doesn't mean that you never, that you work from home. Of course not. I barely work from home. I mean, I'm at home now. I'm in my studio, but I work from lots of really cool places. Um, and no, it doesn't mean that you never see your coworkers. I'm going to see some coworkers tomorrow. But it does mean that you're not like stuck in traffic commuting to, you know, an office uh, uh, every so often. And it means that all of these other things are possible. And like, that's the positive vision that I think as people are starting to realize, like, this is the multi-trillion dollar rewriting of the world. It's not, you know, making Zoom calls more interesting. I love how the rewriting, like, I love what it does for accessibility. I also worry what it does for accessibility with proximity bias, with kind of what you were saying earlier, Phil, like, how do we make sure it's even for the people that choose to use online communication tools and choose to go in person? And I don't know if we'll answer the question on the podcast, but I just feel Let's like that's Let's answer it. <laughs> right now. Three, two, one. Give us no. one word. Um, <laughs> and then last, before we let you go. Are you going to stay the CEO mm -hmm, and all turtles? Are you going to hand off the CEO baton? What's your plan for running kind of a startup studio and a major venture back company at the same time? Yeah. I mean, I never really planned on being the CEO of either. Uh, like I'm not, I'm, this is my fifth, again, it's my fifth startup. It's my fifth CEO gig. I, I'm not motivated by being CEO. I, I really like, that's not what's important. Um, I just want, like, I want to create the things that I wish existed in the world. And when no one else is doing them, like I want to be able to get, a bunch of really talented people together and, 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 and do it. Um, so like my, my goal is to have something be great. And when there is a better person to be the CEO, I very much want the better person to do it. Uh, that was my philosophy at Evernote. That's been my philosophy, you know, before that's been my philosophy after. So I don't know, like at this point, um, you know, mm -hmm is brand new. It's again, it's just a year old. I love it. I think it's my life's work. But to be honest with you, every job I've ever had in the past 20 years, I felt like it's my life's work. So it's just like I don't get into things if I don't do it. So, you know, I, I had no plans to to change anytime soon. But if the company gets to the to a point where there are people who would be obviously better at me, I would very much welcome uh, an upgrade. Okay. Well, we're going to hold you to that and we'll have you back on in six or nine months so we can see how things are going. Uh, given the pace at which you guys have been building things, I presume we'll be covering you in the meantime. But Phil, thank you for being one of our rare repeat guests. And uh, we appreciate the time and good luck with uh, your new, I think it's like a 400 million post money valuation. So good luck uh, growing into it. 
Thank you, uh, Alex and Natasha. No comment on on valuations, but you know people are people are welcome to speculate. And but and, and Natasha, I think the thing that you said about accessibility is actually like the singular important question that yeah, we definitely yeah. would love to discuss uh, at any time. So that is that that is it's I think the me. biggest the biggest promise of of this new world is to actually make it fairer and more accessible. But that won't happen automatically. Like we we have to go out of our way to rigorously do it. But there's a real possibility, I think, for meaningful improvement in that regard. I will be an mm-hmm influencer when it happens. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> and in my, in my defense, I didn't make that number up. That's from PitchBook. I wasn't, I wasn't throwing it out there to troll. But then, we'll th- see. Then, then they made that number up. Ah, well, thanks. Somebody, somebody made up some numbers. Is all I'm now saying. I look dumb on my own show. All <laughs> right. Well, anyways, Phil, a real treat. Natasha, thanks for being here. Everyone, we're back Friday morning. We'll see you then.